You are listening to Perplexity. The devil is out and preying on her like a beast upon the flesh of the pure lamb. She ails as she must. She never waked this morning, but her eyes open and she walks and hears not, sees not, and cannot eat. Her soul is taken, surely. Arthur Miller, The Crucible. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Perplexity, a mystery podcast. As always, I am your host, Kadra, and I am so freaking excited because today is very special. This is the 50th episode of Perplexity. So I just want to say thank you so much for your continued support. And if you're new here, welcome as well. I have a really great story for you guys today. It's a big boy. We are going to be talking about the Salem Witch Trials as well as the lesser known but very interesting werewolf trials. Also, quick shout out to my sister for getting me this shirt for my birthday. It says perplexity is my superpower and she also got me these UFO earrings, so I had to wear this. Also, this is my first episode uh, that I'm recording as uh, age 30, so had a big milestone there, turned 30 on November 4th, so super excited, lots of celebrations going on. Uh, If you are new here, I tell tales every single week that have perplexed me, so if you love a good mystery that leaves you wanting more and you're watching on YouTube, hit that subscribe button and the notification button, or if you're listening on a podcast, add this show to your list, and please leave five-star reviews. It helps so much. So very quickly, before we get into this insane tale, I do have to give a trigger warning as this podcast is not for children and there will likely be some language and then of course some very unpleasant events and death. So listener discretion is advised and all of the sources that were used for today's episode will be available in the show notes. It is time for the Salem Witch Trials. From early 1692 to mid-1693 in colonial Massachusetts, 20 people would be executed, and more than 200 people would be accused of practicing what was commonly called the devil's magic or witchcraft. So to quote Jess Blumberg of Smithsonian Magazine, the story of the trials has become synonymous with paranoia and injustice. Fueled by xenophobia, religious extremism, and long-brewing social tensions, the witch hunt continues to beguile the popular imagination more than 300 years later." And I would definitely say that's true. This is one of those pieces of history that people just can't stop talking about. How could they do this to so many people? Uh, Why did this happen? Like, what else could have contributed environmentally to cause something like this? There's a lot of theories, which we will get into. During this time, obviously the incidence of people being religious was much higher, and many religions throughout the world, including Christianity, taught that the devil 
could give witches power to harm people. A mass hysteria, also known as the witchcraft craze, swept European countries from the 14th to 17th centuries, primarily Western Germany, the Low Countries, France, Northern Italy, and Switzerland. These hunts involved effort to identify witches rather than pursue individuals who were already thought to be witches. So it was basically everyone was trying to play detective and basically figure out who else could be a witch out here. So it was pretty insane. And what started as suspicion or rumor, church politics, a family feud would lead to legal injustice and murder. The number of trials and executions varied according to time and place, but it's generally believed some 110,000 persons were tried for witchcraft in total, and between 40 to 60,000 were executed. So we're talking outside of the Salem witch trials right now. This is like throughout all of Europe. So during this time, some people were burned at the stake, other people were tortured, hung, or drowned. And this varied, you know, culturally. But did you know that about 200 years before the Salem witch trials, there were courts in Europe convicting men and some women of being werewolves of all things. These people were blamed for the mutilating and eating of children, and punishments were incredibly gruesome. So when I read this, I was like, are there a bunch of kids in this area that were being found like half eaten in the woods? Like what's going on here? Or were kids going missing? So I couldn't really find information on that, which was pretty frustrating. In Germany in 1589, an accused man named Peter Stump, and trigger warning, this is horrible, was strapped to a cartwheel, also known as a breaking wheel or an execution wheel, where his skin was removed with hot pinchers. His head was chopped off and he was burned at the stake. Talk about overkill. His head was then attached to a wooden pole that had been carved to look like a wolf, and it was displayed in the streets, as was common in this time period. So these werewolf trials took place from the 15th to 17th centuries, and they continued sporadically in Germany, the Netherlands, and in Eastern Europe. And it would make sense that many of the accused were poor or migrants, it's said that many allegedly confessed to committing horrible crimes, but this was also after they were horrifically tortured, so not exactly a fair confession. It's said that some of the people that were accused may have been actual criminals, including pedophiles or serial killers, but this could also be a complete lie or exaggeration. In 1428, several hundred men and women were burned at the stake in Valais, or Valais, V-A-L-A-I-S, with a sack of gunpowder around their necks. And in total, it's estimated at least several hundred people were tortured and murdered during these trials. However, several scholarly papers reported 30,000 people were executed in France alone between 1520 and 1630. So it was just a complete genocide, absolutely insane. 
And there was a lot of lore, you know, during this time period with with witches and any time that something unfortunate happened, it was often blamed on God, demons, or the supernatural. So this is no different, and this definitely comes into play. In Europe, witches were often blamed for low yield in crops, people developing disabilities, being infertile, or being cognitively impaired. They were considered to be employed by Satan, as if they had traded their souls for his assistance and rode through the air at night to attend either secret meetings or orgies. Pretty ridiculous. The War of 1689 also happened just a little bit before the Salem Witch Trials. It became known as King William's War, and it impacted upstate New York, Nova Scotia, and Quebec, and this sent refugees into several places, including Essex County, specifically Salem Village in Massachusetts. Salem Village today is now known as Danvers, but basically during this time, these refugees understandably needed a place to go and they would need resources. This put a strain on the already strained Salem and increased underlying tensions between the haves and the have-nots. The villagers were also dealing with the aftermath of a recent smallpox epidemic. And it's speculated that this tension resulted in suspicions and resentment towards neighbors and fear of outsiders. There was also a frontier war going on with local native tribes that became very bloody. There was King Philip's War, also known as the bloodiest war in the United States history. Half of the entire indigenous population in New England died from war, disease, starvation, and hundreds of colonists also died during this time. King Philip's War is seen by many as the most gory and disturbing war of all time. And this of course resulted in a lot of PTSD and grief. And to top things off, King Philip was killed during this war and his decapitated head was displayed in the streets of Salem. A horrifying visual the villagers had to look upon daily. And this happened just 15 years before the Salem Witch Trials. So tensions are clearly brewing in this area. For many, all of this was a symbol of the fleeting stability of their religious faith as well. A lot of people in Salem felt that Christianity was in danger. They also felt God brought this war upon them because they weren't divine enough. So the establishment of the Dominion of England also brought New England back under British rule and threatened the Puritan dominance of the New World. And we can't have that, can we? Massachusetts had also switched between being an independent and a royal colony several times, resulting in tax, religious, and property laws constantly changing so people felt very unstable. To make matters worse, add some environmental chaos into the mix. During this time, we had the Little Ice Age, and every winter was the coldest in history. Every summer was incredibly dry. Extreme weather and convenient outbreaks of witchcraft in Europe have been correlated by experts. And I thought this was really interesting. They did a study about how extreme weather conditions, like when it would be insanely cold during the Little Ice Age, that would be just so conveniently when there would be outbreaks of witchcraft, using air quotes. 
So in short, life sucked and people were bored. The Salem village was also made up of a lot of Puritans who called themselves Congregationalists, and they were known to basically piss off everyone that they came into contact with. Generally speaking, many of them were rich, white, and believed the end days for people, eternity in heaven or in hell, had already been predetermined. So there was really nothing you could do. They spent every day praying, trying to prove their devotion to God. The Bible was infallible to them, and everything they believed could only come from the Bible. This was also a time period that fire and brimstone teachings were the norm. And if we know anything about fire and brimstone teachings, it's that all it does is incite fear and chaos and increase chances of violence in communities. The village itself also had a noticeable social divide, exacerbated by a rivalry between the Porter family, who had a strong connection with wealthy merchants in the area, and then there were the Putnams, who sought greater autonomy overall for the village. In the 1650s and 1660s, Salem became a town more associated with commerce than farming, understandably causing a rift between residents. There were all these fights over properties, there were laws suits, and even fights in the meeting houses, as simple over things as like a seating chart. Just petty bullshit. So despite this constant chaos, one rule remained the same. If any man or woman was found to be a witch, they would be put to death. So now that we understand the environment and some of the dark history leading up to the Salem witch trials, Let's get into this story. Enter a woman named Martha Sparks. In October of 1691, just a few months before the infamous Salem witch accusations would begin, Sparks, a resident of a nearby town, would be accused of being a witch and would be thrown in prison. A local reverend named Samuel Paris, remember this name, would get word of this, and he began to tell his congregation that the devil was coming for Salem. And Paris was not a well-liked reverend. He had already developed a pretty bad reputation in Salem. He was known for being very rigid and greedy, and he was also a failed businessman, and he had a very orthodox Puritan theology that divided the Salem Village congregation. People really couldn't decide how to feel about him, but it's not like they had another reverend to choose from. He also demanded a very high salary when he took this position, and he was known to give warlike sermons, so again, fire and brimstone. He focused on a vengeful God rather than a peaceful and loving God, and people quickly got tired of his shit to the point where they stopped paying him and they even took his firewood. So that was like a big thing for him is in his home, he was like, I always need this constant supply of firewood. He wanted a fire going all the time because it's extremely cold. They got so tired of him. Not only did they stop paying him, but they took his firewood away. And this resulted in Paris, of course, being pissed off and he would demonize anyone who dared defy him. Now, if Paris was known to be like this in public, one can only imagine how he acted at home with his wife and children. Now, of course, this is just speculation, but keep this in mind as I continue to tell the story. He was losing his salary and a harsh winter was on its way. By the time that it was January of 1692, 
very weird things started to conveniently happen in Samuel Paris's home. So Paris's daughter, Betty, who was only nine years old, and his niece, Abigail Williams, who was 11 years old, suddenly began to scream, throw things, make really strange sounds, and contort their bodies in strange positions. They also complained of being bit and pinched constantly, and they blamed this on invisible specters. The children were then evaluated by a physician, Dr. William Griggs, and it was chalked up to some type of supernatural possession with a diagnosis of bewitchment. Can you imagine if that was a medical diagnosis today? Bewitchment. So January 12th, a woman named Alice Parker was found lying in the dirt and snow in this area, seemingly dead. But she had a history of what they called fits of unconsciousness. She had epilepsy. It was seen as a sign of the devil during this time. People were scared to touch her out of fear of catching this mysterious, devilish ailment. But men eventually mustered up the courage to pick her up, take her home, and put her to bed. But when they laid her down, the men claimed that she suddenly shot up out of bed and began laughing hysterically. Not long after this, there was a 12-year-old girl in Salem Village named Anne Putnam Jr. who began to have similar behaviors to the two young girls in Samuel Paris's family. There were also several other children that began to act strangely. Mercy Lewis, Elizabeth Hubbard, Mary Walcott, and Mary Warren. Word of these very strange behaviors begins to sweep through the town, and it of course gains the attention of everybody, including two magistrates, Jonathan Corwin and John Hawthorne. So these two magistrates began to put a lot of pressure on local officials, and by the time it was late February, there were legal actions moving forward. So during the case proceedings, the young girls, they called them the afflicted, would blame three older women for their sudden and strange behaviors. These women, of course, were all women living in poverty, including Tituba, Sarah Good, and Sarah Osborne. Tituba was a slave of Samuel Paris, and Tituba's origins are debated, as if it really matters, but she may have been of Caribbean Native American heritage, and Sarah Good was a homeless woman. Sarah Osborne was an elderly, bedridden woman living in poverty, and a lot of people in the community did not like her. She was scorned because she had had a romantic situation with an indentured servant. So the magistrates interrogate these women, and it's not just for like hours. They interrogated them for days on end. And while Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne continued to plead their innocence, Tituba's story was different. She would initially claim her innocence, but after being repeatedly interrogated, and I'm sure with her fear, uh, with her vulnerable status as a minority woman and a slave, it's said that she would allegedly confess. According to the magistrates, Tituba would say, quote, the devil came to me and bid me serve him. She then described seeing a tall man with white hair who commanded her to sign his book, along with several other strange visions, like seeing black dogs, red cats, and yellow birds. So she claimed that she signed this man's mysterious book, 
and that there were several other witches in the area looking to take down the Puritan villagers. So this would incite a crazy supernatural war in Salem Village that would become entirely based on spectral evidence. It is also alleged in some of the sources that I found that Tituba told the Paris's daughters tales of voodoo and that this may have stimulated Betty, Abigail Williams, and their friend Ann Putnam to indulge in fortune telling, but who knows how much of this is actually true. Also, who cares if you share your cultural beliefs with other children? Additionally, at the suggestion of a neighbor named Mary Sibley, the girls decided to bake a witch cake. And this is not a delicious treat, I apologize. They actually asked Tituba to bake the cake for them, and this was a combination of rye bread and the urine of the afflicted. Delicious. And basically, I don't understand what the thought process was here, but they would bake this cake and they would give it to the family dog and the dog would eat it. And this was supposed to somehow rid the afflicted girls of their attacks from this mysterious witch entity. It's also said that when the dog would eat the witch cake, it would somehow harm the witch. This is said to have absolutely enraged Samuel Paris, who called the act blasphemous. And he basically blamed everything on Tituba, or maybe the girls blamed it on her and he believed them. Even though the affliction had started long before this witch cake had been baked, and it wasn't even Tituba's idea. She was simply doing what she was told to do. So this poor woman. And as this news and gossip would continue to sweep the town, paranoia would become worse and worse, and people began to mistrust each other. Everyone was just constantly looking around like, who, who did this? Could it be you? Could it be you? Could it be you? It's so like all the tensions are building. Other girls and young women also, of course, began to appear afflicted with the same ailment. So like a classic case of mass hysteria, including Ann Putnam Jr., her mother, her cousin, Mary Walcott, and the Putnam servant, Mercy Lewis. So this is the infamous Putnam family that I had mentioned earlier. And Anne seemed to become afflicted the same day that Tituba baked the witch cake. Elizabeth Hubbard, a 17-year-old maid for Dr. Griggs, the doctor that examined the two girls at the beginning of the story, uh, she also became afflicted. And it's known that Dr. Griggs brought tales of bewitchment home as he was the only one who diagnosed Betty Paris and Abigail Williams. Martha Corey and Rebecca Nurse, local church attendees who were both active in the community, were also accused. Even Sarah Good's four-year-old daughter, Dorothy, was questioned by magistrates. And when she was quiet and shy, not really talking to the magistrates, they took this as she must be hiding something. It's just fucking ridiculous. But many of the accused would prove to be enemies of the Putnams, and the Putnam family members and in-laws would end up being the accusers in dozens. 
of the cases. A little convenient, don't you think? Additionally, the six girls that were the major accusers besides Anne were between the ages of 17 and 20, and all but Anne were servants and orphans with very difficult lives that were known to have a history of abuse. Many were also refugees with clear signs of PTSD. So just a bummer all around, man. By April of 1692, things started to get really bad. The colony's deputy governor, a man named Thomas Danforth, goes to these legal hearings. He takes some of his assistants with him, and this is when dozens of other villagers were brought in for questioning. So there's this special court with seven judges known as the Court of Oyer and Terminer. I'm probably not saying that right. This was established by the governor, William Phipps, in late May to basically handle these cases for Suffolk, Essex, and Middlesex counties. Oyer means to hear, and Terminer means to decide. So just a few days after this special court was established specifically to handle these witch accusations, there was a minister named Cotton Mather, and he wrote a letter to the court saying that spectral evidence should not be allowed to be admitted into the court. But wouldn't you know, the court would completely ignore this request. So the first alleged witch to be tried by this court was an older woman named Bridget Bishop, and she was labeled in the town as a gossip and someone who was promiscuous. And we can't have that, can we? She had also been accused and found innocent of witchery about a decade earlier. So this poor woman has to deal with this for a second time. And despite her begging and pleading and swearing her innocence, she was found guilty on June 2nd. She would be hung eight days later on what became known as Gallows Hill on June 10th. And this would begin the many murders of men and women in Salem Village who were accused of either being witches or being complicit. So this continued in July, August, and September, with five people being hung in July, five more in August, and eight in September. Among these were Nurse and Good. Good said she was no more a witch than the judge was a wizard, which I think is pretty funny. At least she got a couple of smart-ass remarks in before she was killed. Another person who was hung was a man named George Burroughs, and he was a minister who recited the Lord's Prayer at his execution. This is something that no witch was thought to be capable of doing, by the way. These people were all forced to defend themselves without aid of counsel, and people would claim that they had been attacked by the accused, and this was seen as evidence. You could literally just make shit up on the stand, and people were like, yeah, okay. Even as the accused testified on the witness stand, the girls and young women who had accused them would make a scene. They would like shake and cry and basically act like they were being possessed all over again by simply bringing up these people that were being accused. It was like, oh, they're afflicting me even more being a few feet away from me. Just insane. And this of course was also seen as evidence. So just absolutely horrifying cases of injustice and evil. Throughout all of these trials, those who confessed and named other witches were spared the court's vengeance. 
and it was believed they would later receive punishment from God. So on October 3rd, Mean Girls Day, Increase Mather, Cotton Mather's son, also publicly denounced the use of spectral evidence in legal matters. He was the president of Harvard at the time, and he even went on record saying, quote, it were better that 10 suspected witches would escape than one innocent person be condemned. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And conveniently, it wasn't until Governor Phipps' wife being questioned that further arrests of alleged witches became prohibited and many were released. Funny how that works. After this happened, Governor Phipps then dissolved the court of Oyer and Terminaire October 29th, replacing it with a superior court of judicature, which specified that spectral evidence was not allowed. In January and February, though, some trials resumed, but only three more were convicted. And by May of 1693, Phipps would then pardon everyone that was imprisoned on charges of witchcraft. But by this point, it didn't matter. The damage was already done. 19 innocent men and women had been murdered on Gallows Hill. Giles Corey, Martha's 71-year-old husband, was tortured, by the way. He was pressed to death with heavy stones when he refused to submit himself to a trial. So they murdered him slowly and painfully. And this is referenced in The Crucible by the character Elizabeth Proctor, who says, quote, great stones they lay upon his chest until he pled I or nay. They say he give them but two words, more wait, and died. It were a fearsome man, Giles Corey. End quote. And one of the sources that I read said that this poor man was slowly pressed to death over the course of a couple of days. It's a really, really horrible way to die. And he was just trying to protect his wife. Five to seven people would also die in jail. And I got mixed reports on the numbers, but I'm sure it was due to the inhumane conditions. Colonists in Andover and Salem Village had even murdered two dogs after they became convinced that the dogs were linked with the devil. So I guess their owners had been accused or something and these assholes came and murdered their dogs. In the years that followed, some people that accused these poor men and women, including the judge, Samuel Seawall, and one of the young girls, Ann Putnam, would publicly confess that they had made grave errors and that they had a lot of guilt for what they had done. Massachusetts's general court even ordered a day of fasting and soul searching. And this was on January 14th, 1697, which I feel like is the modern day equivalent to thoughts and prayers, like when someone says that after a tragic event. The trials were declared unlawful in 1702, and it wasn't until 1711 that colonials would pardon some of the accused, with the colony passing a bill restoring the rights and good names and compensating the families in 600 pounds. And it wouldn't be until 250 years later, in the year of 1957, that the state of Massachusetts would formally apologize. And it would take until July of 2022 to officially exonerate the last convicted witch. How ridiculous is that? This last convicted witch was Johnson, and she received an official pardon after a class of eighth graders started a lobbying campaign 
which gives me hope for the future, but also like, it's pretty fucking insane that it took this long and it took a group of eighth graders to actually make this happen. They clearly cared about this more than the state. And the last known execution for witchcraft would take place in Switzerland in 1782. The abuses of the Salem witch trials would contribute to changes in US court procedures, playing a big role in Americans now having the right to legal representation, the right to cross-examine an accuser, and the concept of innocent until proven guilty. Wow, what a concept. We've also all probably heard the term witch hunt, which is still used today to reference a smear campaign directed against a person or a group holding unpopular views. And this is where this originated from. And of course, this historical tragedy has inspired many works, including the 1953 infamous play, The Crucible, which was written by Arthur Miller. So kind of like what I was talking about at the very beginning, there are a lot of mixed opinions as to what could have caused all of this to take place. Some scientists have attempted to identify a medical cause for the afflicted's behavior, while historians have pointed to a very tense socio-political environment. I think this is also an example of classism at its worst and religious extremism. One interesting theory that came about in 1970 the post-acid age, was a study published in Science Magazine by Linda R. Caporiel, which was ergotism. And this is a condition caused by eating foods containing the ergot fungus. She basically said that this may have been responsible for the afflicted's strange behaviors, as ergot poisoning is known to cause muscle spasms, vomiting, delusions, and hallucinations. However, ergotism also results in neurological damage, like horrible memory loss, dementia, gangrene, and constant diarrhea, which does not seem to be mentioned at all in any of these accounts. And if people involved had been exposed to ergot for the entirety of 1692, they would have certainly suffered permanent cognitive impairment or dementia. The young girls responsible for the accusations are known to have lived normal lives after the trial and after the hanging settled down as well. So this whole theory, uh, ergot can be found in rye, wheat, and other cereals. It grows when those types of grains get moist. And during this time, this would have been linked to the rye in the area. This was a communal grain for Salem Village. But again, this would have meant that the entire area of Salem Village would have been eating this same grain. So it doesn't make sense that only the afflicted would have had these symptoms and nobody else in the village. So today, this theory is considered extreme and unconventional to most. And I even fell prey to this because like it became such a popular theory and it's just kind of become this fun fact that everybody says. So I thought that it was a valid theory, but turns out it's not. There also have been some other medical theories, such as asthma, Lyme disease, epilepsy, child abuse, which is similar to one of the theories in the Bell Witch Haunting that I covered just recently, uh, delusional psychosis, and an epidemic of 
bird born encephalitis lethargica and even sleep paralysis to explain some of the attacks on accused that took place at night. So people have even tried to say that this mass hysteria and people attacking these accused was because they were all suffering like some type of mental illness or physical like medical condition but I think that that's bullshit personally. I think that we should be careful when we're pulling out these medical theories because if we're not this could result in excusing the clear classism religious extremism, legal injustice, and tyranny that went on during this time. The girl's sudden and odd behavior also mirrored that of the children of a Boston family in 1688 that were believed to have been bewitched, a description provided by Congregational Minister Cotton Mather in his book, and which may have been known by the girls in the village because, I didn't know this, literacy was incredibly high during this time period in order to be well-read on God's word. One source even said that the literacy rate during this time period was even higher in this area than it is today, which is pretty insane. Other theories like could this have been conversion disorder, which is like physicalized fear and anxiety. Hyperventilation can produce a cramped throat, suffocation, fainting, and even seizures, which could explain the girl's strange symptoms. Other modern historians have focused on potential jealousy, spite, or need for attention to explain these ridiculous behaviors. And we also can't forget that, like I said earlier, a lot of these girls had come from very traumatic situations. A lot of them were refugees. So, you know, they could have been going through it. And they're very young. Um, they're still, you know, mentally developing. And this was a very tough time period to be growing up in. It has also become clear through other historical writings that it's quite possible these accusations could have stemmed from disagreements with a neighbor, someone looking at you wrong, you know? Like there was a lot of mistrust and constant arguing lawsuits going on in this area. But overall, the general consensus is that this seems to be one of colonial America's most notorious cases of mass hysteria. And that is the absolutely horrific and tragic story of the Salem and Werewolf witch trials. So what do you guys think? Do you think that this was mass hysteria? Do you think any of these men or women may have actually been witches? Do you think that this was a case of ergot poisoning? Uh, let me know your thoughts about these theories and just what you thought of this crazy story. Uh, I also want to know if you guys had heard of the werewolf trials before, because I definitely had not. So let me know your thoughts in the comments below if you're watching on YouTube or if you are listening on the podcast. Send me a DM. Uh, on Instagram or respond to the Q&As and polls on Spotify. And thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. This is a big 50th episode. And again, just I want to give you guys a big, big thank you for continuing to listen every week and support the podcast. It means the world to me. Please continue to share, review, and subscribe. You all are amazing. I hope you stay safe and have a great week. And I will talk to you next week. Bye. Thank you for listening to Perplexity, a mystery podcast hosted, written, and produced by Kadra Brennan.
If you enjoyed today's episode, tell the world about it by going to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leaving a five-star review. It helps the show more than you know. Contact, support, and merch links can be found in the episode description. And if you have a story to share or a topic request, send an email to perplexitymysterypodcast at gmail.com. Cager would love to read your story on the podcast. Until next week, stay curious. <laughs>